What's happening? This is Poder Podcast. Your host, Sergio Lagunas. On this podcast, we feature influential and powerful leaders with their own unique stories on art, music, education, and influence. So listen to these stories to find out their source of poder. Welcome to another episode of Poder Podcast. Today we are at UCLA. We are at a conference and we have with us David Flores, originally from Pasadena, California, teaching in the classroom in East Oakland, California. Thank you for bringing your, yourself here to Poder Podcast. Yeah, man. It's an honor. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to reconnect with you, man. Um, Got a lot of love from you from our days in Santa Barbara, and uh, it's so nice to see us in this facilitator role and uh, continuing to try to grow, transform, and and spread the, the, the knowledge we we accumulate, right? Yeah, okay. So let's get to it, man. Can you share a little bit about yourself to our audience? Yeah, absolutely, man. So like you mentioned, my name is uh, David Flores, uh, originally from Northwest Pasadena, uh, California. Uh, grew up in a... Lower working class, uh, first generation, uh, Mexican family. Uh, my mom, Carmen, she's a, currently a janitor at Caltech. She grew, uh, growing up, she worked at uh, hotels and, and, like I said, in different forms of uh, the service industry. My, my dad, Gerardo, has been painting cars for over 30 years. That's always been his passion. I have two brothers, uh, Jerry and Esau. Uh, my brother, Jerry, is a professor at the University of Toronto former high school dropout, so it's uh, great to see the transformation he's been through. And then uh, my little brother Izzy, he's a junior in high school. But um, yeah, as, as for me, I think um, what I can say is that I've been given a lot of access to resources and privilege. And uh, early on in my life, I started to believe this idea of being you know, the, the good brown boy and like the one who made it out the hood, right? Mm. I was really uh, fed that narrative from a young age. and. It's something that I, that I initially I really believed and embraced, and as I got older, I started to really see like how problematic it was, right? Uh, for me to be quote unquote successful in this system, while at the same time my homies who I grew up with, like, same folks in my community, similar backgrounds, not not being given the same opportunities, the same resources. So that's really what what drove me to really get into education, to really uh, give a fair chance to everyone and uh, to give access in order for everyone to get a fair chance, which within the system is extremely difficult. Yeah, tell us about those difficulties. What do you see in your day-to-day work and being an unapologetic educator in East Oakland? Yeah, I think uh, first and foremost, yeah, um, it's been difficult to get to a point of being unapologetic. Um, I really had to almost prove myself within the system and uh, you got to learn their language, man. So I had to learn how to write their lesson plans, but with my content. And um, really gaining those skills and that language to do so, I think is comparable to how so many of us in academia really got to learn the academic language in order to navigate and get these degrees and ultimately bring, bring positive change. Um, but I think my, the struggles I see on a daily basis are that students aren't really being served as people. Um, and I think that's what we're really lacking as a as an institution of teachers. Um, 
And with the system in place, we're really lacking humanizing practices. And we don't recognize that kids come in with baggage, they come in with issues, and we just automatically expect them to walk into class, to sit up straight, be attentive, and to be engaged for long periods of time where biologically kids aren't meant to do that. And I think uh, environmentally, we're really limited because of all the trauma and all the, all the toxicity we, we carry on a daily basis. So um, I, I, see a lot of, I see a lot of struggles. I see a lot of kids coping and just trying to get by with a lot of pain. And I see so much resilience and tenacity and joy. And I see my students persevering despite everything they encounter, despite the systemic limitations and injustice. Um, they always find a way to persevere and push through. And um, in their own way, they're forging their dreams. You know, whether, whether it may be the dreams I hope for them or not, they're still trying to forge their dreams. So. Uh, for me, it's being a facilitator of knowledge first and foremost and giving kids the access and the opportunity to delve into their dreams, to reflect on themselves. Some of the work I'm doing here at this, at this conference, which is, you know, really trying to transform through the process. And as my advisor, Darnie Lee at UCLA said, and I'll never forget, everyone's in their own process. So it's really honoring that with yourself and recognizing that you are in a process of transformation and recognizing that others are too. So really checking yourself and being humble and um, and being intentional about understanding that everyone is in a struggle and is making the effort to grow in their own way. Yeah, and in terms of that, um, where do you see yourself right now? Do you feel like this is what you want to do for the next 10, 20 years? Uh, do you see yourself moving into administration? I know once you go into administration, you're more about okay, what am I going to do to get the budget balance? What am I going to do to be a leader in this community? Do you see yourself moving up or you want to be an educator on the ground helping with these students? Yeah, I think my understanding of the system in place now after five years of teaching has um, reassured me that my place is on the ground in the classroom. From what I've seen from administrators and even with this ongoing teacher strike in Oakland is Administrators will be politicians when they need to be. And their lack of job security really, I think, limits the amount of impact they're able to have. Now, are administrators able to bring transformative change? Absolutely. But I think that it only gets harder. And that's when you're really playing with fire in the sense that you got to wear the suit. You got to talk, they're talking the meetings. And to a certain extent, I got to do that too. But at least I finally found the school. It took me four schools to do it, but I finally found the school that lets me be unapologetic. Other schools didn't let you be yourself. So, I mean, schools I've been at before, I worked for Green Dot Charter Schools. I worked for the Inner City Education Foundation. And even at public schools um, in San Francisco, where I worked at, that was run by a former cop. Um, you run into folks who don't understand what you're doing and they didn't understand that me politicizing students came in the process right of exposing them to critical culturally relevant content I didn't politicize them by force when you expose folks to knowledge when you expose, uh, expose youth to counter narratives right and the stories of their community and of struggle and you reveal the true colors of this nation and this system in place, this colonial system in place, 
kids start to question and kids start to want to challenge. And they start to understand, this is why I'm so angry when the police come around me. Or this is why I'm so uncomfortable when these white administrators start trying to tell me to pull up my pants or to stop speaking Spanish. Um, and it's a combination of these microaggressions and being jaded. So I've been at schools where they told me I'm fostering a us versus them mentality and I have to turn in lesson plans a week before. I've been at a school where um, I was talking to my students about uh, racism and reverse racism not existing and a white teacher automatically saying that was wrong and when I confronted her about it accused me of being racist and trying to manipulate the system in place to make me seem like the aggressor um, or even being in coaching and having to deal with microaggressions on the soccer field mm. from referees saying things like oh well I can almost guarantee I know the answer to this question but is there an athletic trainer present at this game for one of my home games in East Oakland. Yes. Yeah, so again, it's uh, these microaggressions that get excused. And, um, I think such a big part of it is finding your niche and finding, finding the capacity to navigate the system in place and not become so jaded. Because it's too many folks become jaded because they become hopeless and they see, oh, this is an uh, insurmountable monster I'm facing. But the reality is, you know, within our classroom, we have a sphere of influence. And within our school, we have a sphere of influence and we can impact colleagues and we can impact youth to really reconsider the ways that they think they live and they perceive their role in, in this life, in this universe, and in the struggle, ultimately. So um, there's ideals that I really try to push on my students. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in terms of coaching, because yeah. uh, that's a completely different experience outside of the classroom, yeah. uh, what do you... What are your goals with, with, with your coaching uh, and leadership style? What do, you, what do you teach them outside? Yeah, I think it's, it's just another opportunity to, to be in a space with, with boys and recognizing my posi positionality as a cisgender Latino male in my body and growing up in a similar background experiences with the boys I'm coaching, recognizing that they spew toxic language all the time. And it's because we were taught that language and it's checking kids and you know, letting them know me, a big brown man in this body, is telling you stop being homophobic, stop being sexist, right? Stop referring to women or folks that identify as LGBTQ in that in that way, right? So for me, it's using every space I'm a part of as an opportunity to bring some type of transformative change. So whether I'm in the classroom, whether I'm on the field, I'm trying to humanize kids. I'm trying to help them recognize their worth, their value and inspire them to not only be successful and happy within their own lives, whatever that means to them, but really ultimately reflect on what's their role in the bigger picture and in bringing transformative change to the world around them and their communities. Yeah, and in speaking to that truth, what would you say is something else that you do for the community? I believe I've seen pictures of you being in the streets. Uh, you mentioned uh, the Oakland strikes. What is going on right now in Oakland? Yeah, so I mean, I think that um, it's it's crucial that I immerse myself into to every space I can potentially bring change in uh, while recognizing the space I take up at the same time. So um, with the Oakland teacher strike, it was, it was a no-brainer. And really being inspired by colleagues who I went to school with at UCLA and other folks I interacted with, um, really being catalysts for change really inspired me and other educators in Oakland to 
again, be about what we say we're about and not just demanding higher wages, but really more support for our kids and really demanding resources that we know are integral to, uh, to bringing transformative change to our communities, right, and, and to the school system. So um, I think, yeah, I mean, I immersed myself in the picket. I mean, I was there every day chanting, picketing, demonstrating. Right? Yeah, at one point uh, I saw you dancing. <laughs> what was up with that? The dancing is part of the, it's part of the joy you bring to the, mm. to the lucha, you know. The lucha is fueled by joy. It's fueled by music and by rhythm. And seeing how my site at Castlemont High School brought joy and energy and music and that rhythm, and then coming to downtown Oakland and seeing a predominantly white uh, white group of teachers kind of lack that, you kind of realize kind of that unique niche that we fill, and the fact that our our unique personalities, right, and our positionalities and our experiences and our culture is needed and it should be valued, right? Not this idea of forgetting it and conforming or assimilating, right? So. You talk a lot about decolonization. Can you, you even put that as your username in some social media channels? Can you talk about what that is about? Is that what people know you for, decolonizing people's minds? Because I'm a big believer in that, too, in terms of uh, food, for example. I make Mexican food. I don't mess with burgers too much. And I make my own, and I even don't eat meat. I I became vegan. So in, is that part of it? Would you say that that is a, a branch of decolonizing the mind? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and I think you start to recognize like, decolonization is, first and foremost, like recognizing the the wisdom that's already there that was given to us that was passed down to us by by all indigenous ancestors I, I don't know if I'm the one decolonizing people's minds I think I'm incorporating a decolonial way of thinking into my own practices into my own pedagogy my way of teaching mm-hmm. and into these workshops I do like my my public speaking my consulting work is is uh, I'm realizing more and more such an integral part of me being able to bring transformative change because I just had two workshops right now, and I spoke to 120 people, right? I got 120 students every year, so I delve with them deeper, but, you know, the impact is definitely different. So I think, uh, yeah, I embrace it. It, it, it definitely is my, my Twitter handle, David Decolonize. But <laughs> nice. It, I, yeah, and it, it is my handle on uh, social media, but it definitely goes beyond that. I think mm-hmm. when I think about decolonization, I think it's straying away from the expectations, the norms, the expectations that this colonial patriarchal society mm. has put on us and really reinvesting in what we've already had. So, for example, what you mentioned about decolonizing your diet, which is work that folks like uh, Nalgona Positivity Pride uh, uh, talk about. Talking about decolonizing your diet, it's not trying to fit some image of being thin, right, or having some type of body figure, which is more based on Western ideas of thinking. But more than anything, uh, tracing your roots into what brought our people's nourishment and tapping into the land, right, and not feeding off of animals, especially when these animals are manufactured in an unhealthy and a toxic way, right? Um, So, yeah, and then when you start learning more about health, you realize, like, all these chemicals and all these issues that, that milk and the meat products and meat, you know, bring to your body. So 
Um, and then that, I think, that shows that it's more than anything. I think decolonization is becoming critically conscious, you know. And I use a colonial concept to, to push this. I learned about Allegory of the Cave as a ninth grader my first day, and um, it stuck with me. And in a decolonial perspective, it's leaving the cave of colonial thought and these restraints that society put on us, and it's really recognizing that there's a whole way of thinking, of living, of being in the world around us that we're ignoring by not opening our eyes. So it's opening our eyes to the, to the knowledge, to the good that our people's always carried and embracing it. And at this point, I want to talk about, about you. What is your source of poder? My source of poder is the people around me. It's this ideal I have of a world that awaits us when everybody is humanizing, when uh, everyone embraces their culture and their roots. I think what is my source of poder is uh, maintaining critical hope and uh, being compassionate and um, recognizing that every human brings, brings energy and worth to every space that they engage in. My source of poder is seeing other people happy and spreading joy and making my kids happy and being there for my family and being the best partner I can be. More than anything, I think what drives me is seeing the joy in others and uh, knowing that I could potentially bring some kind of transformative change to their lives, to, to other people's lives, and, and ultimately, hopefully to, hopefully, to my own life as well. So um, I don't know when I'll die, but I know I'm going to die in this fight. I know I'm going to die in this revolution, and I'm just honored to be able to be a part of it. And every day that I am able to have an impact on people, is a source of poder. So I wake up every day being thankful to the universe to, for giving me the opportunity to, to impact people's lives and recognize that I was given gifts like all of us have been. So it's embracing these gifts and how do I bring good with the gifts I have. And when it comes down to it, how do we end this podcast episode? It's been so deep. It's been an honor talking to you. What, is, what are some words of wisdom, of advice, of inspiration you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, it's, it's been an honor and a blessing, brother, like for um, It's always important to engage in these conversations, and I'm really happy for for you taking on this, this journey with the podcast. I'm so proud of you being brave and uh, really bringing truth out to the world. Um, but if there's anything I can I can leave you with is what I, what I tell my students. We can't just talk the talk. We've got to walk the walk, and we've got to embrace the journey and embrace the process and Recognize that that true growth and true transformation is rooted in self-reflection and is rooted in a desire to, to be better and, uh, and to bring change. And when you align yourself with the ideals of love and compassion and appreciation and encouragement, um, I think you can't fail and you can't go wrong. I encourage everyone to to continue to seek ways to spread love around uh, in their lives, to embrace the struggle, and to recognize that it's one thing to learn the skills and to navigate the system in place, and it's another thing to drink the colonizer's Kool-Aid and to assimilate and to conform. So in the process, in our struggle, we must like never forget who we are and where we come from, because that is ultimately always going to be our guiding source of light. Thank you, David, and thank you for being on this episode. Yeah, it was a pleasure, man, and uh, blessings to everybody out there. Much love.
Thank you for listening to Poder Podcast, the podcast con poder. I am your host, Sergio Lagunas. Music is produced by Brian Avarete. Please follow us on all social media channels, including Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can listen to us on Spotify, and you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, this is Poder Podcast.